We're talking today about the peace that Christ brings. Charles, thank you for mentioning that in your prayer. We are fully aware that there are many spots on this earth where there is not only an absence of peace, but there is the presence of war. People are using instruments of death against each other and ending human lives. There's no greater expression of hatred than to decide that another person should no longer exist to terminate their lives. And it's happening every day and people are all over the world doing this. It might seem strange to be talking about peace, but that is exactly what God has said Jesus came to establish. We're going to talk about that today, and we're going to talk about uh, a prophet that God talked to about this, the prophet Isaiah. And before I start reading the passage, we're going to be in chapter 2 of Isaiah. We're only going to look at the first four verses, but before I get into that, let me explain to you a little bit about the situation going on when God gave this message to Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet who lived about 100 years before the fall of Jerusalem. And when he was alive, uh, the Assyrian Empire had just come down from the north and they had conquered the northern tribes of Israel. Uh, they had uh, implemented a brutal deportation policy designed to try to disintegrate the Jewish identity and culture. What they did was they took a large number, most of the people that lived in the territory of the northern tribes, and they took them off into exile. And they didn't just take them off into exile in Nineveh. They actually scattered them in small groups throughout all the other conquered nations of the Fertile Crescent, far, far, far from home and made sure that they put them in groups small enough that they could not have enough clout to accomplish much of anything and put them in places where they didn't know the language or the culture or anything and just left them there. And then from all those other nations they had conquered, they brought people and settled them in the territory of Israel. So all of a sudden in Israel and the tribes of the north, and this is happening during Isaiah's lifetime, in the tribes of the north all of a sudden there are a bunch of new people who have been brought in by the Assyrians who do not know the culture, do not know the geography, do not know the language of the Israelites and this is the reality of what's happening in the north. And uh, the Assyrians stand out in history as the most brutal and cruel of the ancient empires. And none of them were terribly nice, but the Assyrians were even worse. And everybody knew the stories. Many nations would surrender automatically and not even fight because they knew that the Assyrians would make an example of them when they lost and they all knew the stories of beheadings and the amputation of hands and noses and ears and skinning people alive and all the horrendous things the Assyrians publicized very widely to intimidate and terrorize people. And during Isaiah's lifetime is when the Rabshakeh, the high-ranking military official in the Assyrian war machine, shows up at the gates of Israel and in the Hebrew language threatens the whole city and says, you guys had better surrender or before long you guys are going to be eating your own dung and drinking your own urine. No nation has been able to resist us. 
That's what's happening when Isaiah receives this word from God. So uh, this message was given in the middle of tremendous unrest and the threat of the Assyrian Empire breathing down their necks. That's the moment in which God gives this message to Isaiah. Let's start it out. Uh, Verse 1, the word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So at this moment, and you might wonder why all this interest in the little bitty territory of Israel, which is kind of like about the size of New Jersey, um, the northern empires, Syria, Assyria, Babylon, all of them rise up in the Fertile Crescent to the north. The only other huge empire in the world at that time uh, that they were aware of was to the south along the Nile, the empire of Egypt. The only way to get there was this little bitty strip of land because outside of that strip of land there was just open desert and there's no way you could get your uh, armies across a desert like that. So the, that's the interest people, all these nations had constantly because if you wanted to be the ruler of the world, you had to take on Egypt and you had to get through Israel to get there. So this is the situation in which God brings this message to Isaiah and God is telling Isaiah that he's going to do something in this little bitty, I mean, Israel itself is small already, but when you cut that in half and say, we're just talking about Judah and Jerusalem, that's an even smaller piece of land. And God's telling Isaiah that he's, he's got something in the works for Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days <coughs> that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. Paul, I mean God, I'm sorry, talks to Isaiah about something, and he, he's not very specific about the time frame, in the latter days. In other words, this is going to happen, and the way it's described gives the impression that this is something that might be some distance away, but it's coming. And God is going to do something, and he talks about the mountain of the house of Yahweh. Uh, if you've been to Jerusalem, you know that to describe the uh, mount upon which the temple was built, Solomon's temple, is a little bit generous to call that a mountain. Uh, now, Jerusalem is hilly. It's not flat. It's not like this area here. Uh, it, it's hilly, and every, every area of it is, is kind of going up or down in some way. But none of these hills would you really look at and say, this is a mountain. There's no snow-capped peaks anywhere in Jerusalem. But in the city of Jerusalem, among these hills, the highest area, the highest hill in Jerusalem is the one they chose, the one Solomon chose to build the house of Yahweh upon. And that, uh, what, what had made Jerusalem such a big deal in the hearts of people? To this day, it remains a tremendously significant city in the hearts of people. Now, if you read the Bible, Jerusalem was really not interesting to anybody for a very long time. 
Now, we read the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, uh, the stories of Moses and Joshua. We read all these stories, and there are a lot of cities where God did significant things and seemed like over and over there were significant moments of encounter with God, places like Bethel or Shechem. Uh, that were tremendously significant where Abraham and Jacob and Isaac and, and Moses had encounters with God and the people of Israel had significant moments with God. But the city of Jerusalem was not even an Israelite city. It was called Jebus because it was owned by the Jebusites. And it never even came on the radar of the Israelites until the kingdom of David and David decided, you know, I'm going to rule over the 12 tribes of Israel. I really need to find a place to establish my capital that has some neutrality to it. So he conquered the city of Jebus and changed its name to Jerusalem and said, okay, this is the city that I will make the capital. And that way, it's kind of like our Washington, D.C. It doesn't really uh, belong. I mean, it was within a territory of one of the tribes, but it had never really belonged to any Israelite people and he said this will be kind of a good central location kind of neutral it's a defensible city I will choose this as the capital city of the kingdom and the thing that really put Jerusalem on the map was David had this great idea to build a house for God he said I live in a palace and God lives in a tent that's not right his house should be better than mine but uh, when, he, when he talked to the prophet about it, Nathan told him, God told Nathan to tell uh, David, you know what, in all the years I've been working with Israel, have I ever asked anybody to build me a house? I never wanted that. What I, what I told Moses to build was a tent uh, because I wanted to travel with my people and for them to know that I'm with them wherever they are and uh, I didn't want them to localize me to one spot but uh, God honored David's desire and allowed Solomon, David's son, to build this house of God in Jerusalem and through the centuries that house in Jerusalem had become the one place the one authorized place where the people of Israel would travel to bring their sacrifices before God it's the one place where the Levites would lead in worship and where they would teach the Word of God the law of God and it became uh, in the minds of everybody the place where God was housed on this earth it became a tremendously significant location. And Paul is talking about a moment in which he is going to take this city that is known and this house of Yahweh that has become so central in the thoughts of the Jewish people. He's going to raise it up and lift it up and exalt it. And it's going to become the highest mountain on earth, higher than Mount Hermon, the highest peak in the territory of Israel in the north, which stands at above 9,000 feet. Uh, Higher than Mount Everest, the highest peak on earth that stands at above 29,000 feet. Uh, highest of all the mountains of the earth. I think God is using visual language to describe a spiritual reality. Obviously, if you've been to Jerusalem, uh, it is not geographically the highest point on earth. <clears throat> so in what sense is God going to make the city of Jerusalem stand so tall? In what sense is his house going to become the highest mountain on earth? I think we have here a prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. 
You see, one day God will take on flesh and will walk among us. And even though Jesus lived his life in Nazareth in the north and began his ministry in the region of Galilee, the most significant thing Jesus did in his entire life happened in the city of Jerusalem. It was in the city of Jerusalem that Jesus spattered the streets with his own blood. It was outside in the outskirts of the city of Jerusalem that Jesus was raised up on a cross. It was in the city of Jerusalem that Jesus gave his life, shed his blood to pay for the sins of the world and to redeem creation from sin and death and to be able to offer, to extend the offer of restoration, forgiveness of sins and life eternal to any who will put their faith in him. I believe that's the moment Isaiah was hearing from God here. There there will come a day when I will raise up something in this city so significant that this will be the highest point on earth. There will not be anything that happens anywhere in the world that will be able to compare to what God is going to do right here in this city. And that moment was the moment Christ gave his life. And it stood tall above anything else that has happened since or that ever will happen. Now why is God lifting up this location? Why Jerusalem as the spot where Jesus gave his life? Let's keep reading. And all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. Why was God going to exalt this city? Why was he going to do something so significant in this place that it would become the highest point on earth in terms of what God is doing? He wanted it to become a beacon that would draw everybody to him. All the nations. We talk often about Israel, about the election of Israel. God chose the nation of Israel, drew them out of slavery and entered into a covenant with them and said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And we oftentimes forget that God's uh, plan involved the people of Israel with a specific purpose. The election of Israel was not just about God conferring a special privilege on a group of people. It was about God fulfilling his promise to Abraham. God told Abraham, I will establish you in the land and I will greatly increase your descendants and through your descendants, in fact, through your descendant, there will be one descendant of yours through whom all the families on earth will find their blessing. You see, the election and calling of Israel was always purposeful. What God is talking about here is doing something in Jerusalem that will culminate in Israel's election coming to fruition. The purpose for which he set apart a people to himself was to bless the whole earth. So when God raises this up in Jerusalem, all the nations are going to flow to it. Many peoples are going to come and say, Come, let's go to Yahweh's mountain. 
Let's go to the house of the God of Jacob because we want him to teach us his ways. We want to walk in his paths. That's what God has done in Christ. You see, Jesus came and did this wonderful thing in Jerusalem, and he rebuilt the temple of God that the prophets had promised would be rebuilt. But he did not build it with stone and mortar. He built it with human lives. And the language in the New Testament, when it talks about house of God, talks about the people of God. We are a living house of God, made up of living stones that God has fashioned and put together into his house. And God is talking about a day in which people will say, let's draw near to the house of God and let's learn who God is and let's let God teach us a different way to live life let's let God teach us in this new house a different way of being human this prophecy I believe has been completed and this lifting up of Jerusalem and this focal point for all the nations of the earth, the house of Yahweh is his church which is now available across the world. And the nations are continuing to flow into it to learn God's ways and to walk in his paths. There's more to this prophecy for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. God promises a day in which peace will emanate from what's going to happen in this city of Jerusalem. Jesus was the one who did that. And the peace has begun to come out. I know we are still living in a war-torn world and hatred is still here and people still build implements of death. That is the nature of the world we still live in. But I will say, there are more hearts today that have put down their arms and who have renounced war-making than there were 2,000 years ago. The world is not what it was before Christ came. In fact, many of the uh, people who express outrage today express outrage precisely because they believe war shouldn't be happening at all. It was a given 2,000 years ago. But what God intends to do by raising up Christ and drawing the nations to himself to learn his ways and to walk the way he wants to is that now God is the one who is going to rule 
on the earth, and he's going to rule in the hearts of those who have been drawn to him. For his law will come forth from what happens in Zion. Zion is another poetic way of referring to Jerusalem. The word of Yahweh coming out from Jerusalem. Do you know how John the Apostle described the coming of Jesus into this world? In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only one from the Father. God tells Isaiah what He's going to do in Jerusalem. From that, the Word of Yahweh is going to flow out to the world. Jesus is that word of Yahweh, that promised word of Yahweh. And he will rule the nations, and he will judge uh, and decide disputes between peoples. I, we still, I think, uh, are mistakenly assuming that the empires of this world are calling the shots. But when Jesus rose from the dead, he said, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Christ will not someday rule. He rules today. And the, we are given an end goal of what he's doing. We're not there yet. But here's where he's taking us, to the moment when people take their swords and beat them into plowshares. You take an, an instrument designed for killing, and you turn it into an instrument designed to break up ground so that you can plant seed and grow food to feed people. You take your spears that are designed to skewer another human being and you beat them into something different, a pruning hook that is only sharp on the inside and that you use to trim vines so that you can grow grapes and feed people and provide wine for celebration. How does God establish this peace? This moment where nation does not lift sword against nation, where people no longer learn war. I'll tell you how he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it through war. He doesn't do it through jihad. He doesn't do it through inquisition. He does it by changing hearts. And when enough hearts are changed... People stop learning war. People stop making swords. That's the way peace is brought into this world. And there is an end promised moment. I know we have gun lovers in this church. There will come a day when there will be no more of that kind of thing. There will be no need and sadly, the way we humans try to establish peace today is through implements of death. We think the only way to secure peace is to have a big enough sword to scare the enemy. 
God told Isaiah, I'm going to bring peace a different way. I'm not going to do it the way other people have tried to do it. I'm going to make it so that people no longer want to kill. So that people see a sword and say, what is that for? I have no interest in this. There will come a day when there will be no war. And the way we're arriving at that day is Jesus. He is in the process of changing hearts. God's purpose for Israel remains his purpose for his people today. We have become the true house of God on earth. And God lives in each one of our hearts and lives. We are that holy city of God, that new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven to earth and from which issues the invitation to the world, come and be healed. Come and find peace. Be reconciled to God and to everyone else. We are inviting the world outside to enter this sacred community. To find within healing and peace. What Jesus did in Jerusalem stands as a beacon to the whole world. Jesus is drawing the nations to himself. And we join him as ambassadors of God's instruction. Of his word. Of his paths. Of his peace. We will participate with our Lord in that day in which war will be done away with forever. Can you imagine a day when people do not hijack airplanes and crash them into buildings? A day when terrorists do not break in and capture a bunch of hostages and kill a bunch of people and nations do not retaliate with brutality and uh, a day in which uh, there are no reasons to fear no need to buy a gun for protection we know we will see that day and it begins with what Jesus is doing in our hearts right now in the meantime, we are ambassadors of peace today. We're going to sing a song now. This is the time in our service that we set aside to respond to God's word. I'm not sure what God might have been laying on your heart today, but this is your chance to come forward and surrender to what he's calling you to. Maybe you do not know Jesus. I want to invite you today to put your faith in him and discover why he is the highest mountain on earth. Why he is the greatest thing God has done in all of human history. Come and find in him peace, an end to the war that rages in your heart. Maybe you already know him, and today has been a reminder that we have been called into Jesus, and we are not only to walk in his paths, but also share that information with the world around us. And maybe you haven't shared that, and maybe you haven't been walking these paths of peace. Maybe Christ has not been allowed to penetrate in your heart as it should. 
whatever God is laying on your heart, this is your moment to say, God, I want to surrender to what you are calling me to. Please stand. We have people that are going to come here to the front on either side. If you would like to share with somebody what God has laid on your heart and have them pray with you, that's what they're here for. Come, take their hand, share with them, and let them pray with you. If you just want to come and kneel here, the altar is open. Come and kneel here at the front and uh, say to God what you need to say to Him. Come while we sing.